Would you turn in your Bibles to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10? We come to a chapter, a division, a portion of 2 Corinthians that seems so different in tone than what we've read so far. Paul's tone is a little more serious. It's a little more harsh than the previous chapters of 2 Corinthians. In fact, I'll explain in a moment that some people think it's actually a part of a different letter altogether. The tone is so foreign to the way he's been communicating in grace to the Corinthians, even unlike 1 Corinthians. He's been very personal. He's been opening his heart and very encouraging. And now he sort of gets in their face in very direct terms. Do you remember when you were a kid and your mom had different tones of her voice for communicating with you? And you could just tell by just the pitch, the volume, the, the, uh, the, the strength of the voice, what was being communicated, more than just your name. And sometimes your name changed when mom called you. We always called my brother Bob, and she always called him Bob. But when she said, Robert Michael, you knew trouble was brewing. And that was a common name because he often did get into trouble. And it's like Paul changes his tone for something going on, an issue he wants to deal with with the Corinthian church. If you look at the very last verse of chapter 9, it would be a perfect place to end the letter. Having said all that he said so far in encouraging terms, he ends on a very up note, a high note. He has just taken an offering, right, for the church in Jerusalem. He's taken it among the Gentiles. He's telling the Corinthians to cough up the money they promised a year ago for the poor folks in Jerusalem that someone would come by to get it. And he says on this very high note, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Speaking of Christ, it sounds like a natural ending. It's exuberant. It's positive. Now there's a change of tone. Now he gets in their face, which might seem a little weird, a little strange, since he has just taken an offering. Every preacher knows that you don't get in people's face after you take an offering. Not good form. But Paul does, which has caused certain scholars to think this is part of another letter. We've touched on this a couple of times, but let's look at something. Go back to chapter 2 for just a moment and look at a couple of verses with me. He says in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3, And I wrote, speaking of a letter that he wrote, I wrote this very thing to you, lest... When I come or came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Notice those words, affliction, anguish. Tears. Now go over to chapter 7 and look at another verse that ties into this. Verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. It would seem that the language that Paul is referring to in speaking of this other letter doesn't quite fit 1 Corinthians, and scholars think that Paul is referring to the severe letter, another letter that was written and is perhaps lost over time, so that there are actually three letters, some think four letters to the Corinthians, of which we have two. But some, because of the change beginning in chapter 10, going all the way to the end of 2 Corinthians, that that marks 
a portion of another letter altogether. So, follow this carefully. 1 Corinthians would be the book of 1 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians chapter 10 all the way to chapter 13. And 3 Corinthians would be 2 Corinthians 1 through 9. I know that sounds a little hard to follow. But actually three letters. One that was more severe. One that he refers to and perhaps the one that begins in chapter 10. Although in fairness, in fairness. We have no manuscript evidence of that. That is, all of the extant or, or copies in use that we have to look at of 2 Corinthians, all of them include all of the chapters and do not break at chapter 9. Even though it is a possibility and perhaps even a strong possibility, there's no evidence of it, it doesn't matter uh, whether it's lumped together in one or they're three separate letters, uh, it is the Word of God. But there is a change in tone, a change in the way he's dealing with them, because if you, if you go back and remember the reasons he wrote 2 Corinthians, we gave you four reasons he wrote the, the book. All of them begin with an E. He wanted to explain to them why he changed his plans and didn't go to Corinth when he said he was going to go. He was very open to the, to the movement of God and the will of God, and he made plans to go to Corinth, but he changed his plans and said, oh, I'll come later. He wanted to explain why. Second, he wanted to encourage them, encourage them to forgive a member in their church who had committed incest, mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it was a grave sin. Paul said, kick that person out of the church because he's still claiming to be a Christian. Get them out until there is repentance. Evidently, that happened. And Paul encourages them, okay, lest he be swallowed up by too much sorrow, too much grief, bring him back, reinstate him, love on him, shower him with forgiveness. The third reason was to enlist to enlist their help, their financial help, for the church in Jerusalem. And we covered that in the last couple of weeks. He spends a bulk of this epistle talking about this offering that the Gentile churches were bringing together for the mother church in Jerusalem. And the fourth reason is what is touched on in chapter 10 to the end of the book, and that is to establish his own apostleship, to establish his own apostleship. Evidently, there were some in the Corinthian church that questioned Paul's apostleship. He's not a true apostle. They judged him by outward appearance. Though Paul established the church, built the church up, spent time there, he's now gone. And because he's now gone, another group has come in secretly telling things to the church at Corinth and influencing them. And Paul's going to deal very in your face, as I said, very heavy with those Corinthian false prophets or false teachers. He's not getting heavy with the church per se, only their tolerance of these false apostles, but he's really going to deal uh, with those who have uh, uh, sinned against him. It might sound strange that anybody would question Paul. You know, here we are in the year 2000. Two, I was going to say 2001, you know, dates take a little time at the beginning of the year. So far removed from the New Testament letters of Paul. So enough time has elapsed to vindicate Paul's place in church history and his leadership as writer of the New Testament, so much of it. But during his lifetime, there were those who disagreed with him, who were jealous of his ministry, who dissented, who um, came in after he would come in and stir up the pot, bringing in legalism, bringing in sometimes antinomianism, sometimes Gnosticism, all of which Paul had to write against to encourage, to establish his apostleship, but also to establish the churches in the truth. This is important to remember. It's important because we have a tendency to let time erase the truth. So many think nostalgically back to the good old days. Oh, the good old days of the early church. And they were good days. As I read them, they were great old days. 
sometimes. At other times, they weren't so great. And this is a perfect example. Corinth was a New Testament church. But let's see, they were filled with divisions. They were filled with a rampant divorce. They were filled with sexual immorality, filled with doctrinal problems, uh, filled with excesses in spiritual gifts, on and on and on. That's a New Testament church. I still run into people who remember the good old days of the Jesus movement as if Jesus stopped moving. Remember back then, man, the bell bottoms and the tie-dye t-shirts? And wasn't that cool? The good old days syndrome. Listen, the good old days is just a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. Some of those days weren't so good. And the early church really isn't a whole lot different than today in many regards. And Corinth, as I said, is a prime example of that. Well, many people, many leaders, many missionaries were jealous of Paul. He established a lot of churches. He commanded a lot of respect. They were jealous of him. They were envious of his ministry. When Paul was in the the prison at Rome, and he penned a letter to the Philippian church. He alluded to the fact that there were some around him, even in Rome, who were jealous. He said, for some preach Christ, get this, they preach Christ out of envy. And others preach it out of goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. That was the early church. That stuff happened way back then, and it continues to happen way back now as time moves forward. You know, the the church is a family, and um, families have problems. Do you remember family vacations if you had brothers and sisters? My uh, dad loved to drive to um, Minnesota, where my mom is from, and we lived in California. And uh, so think of four boys and two parents driving across the United States of America in one car, and he didn't like to stop for long periods of time, just enough to go to the restroom, grab a bite to eat, and on the road again. By the time we were there at our destination, it was bleak in that car. (laughs) We love each other dearly, but we barely tolerated each other when in that circumstance we were forced to be together for a long period of time. The family of God isn't all that much different. We are still human beings. We still have weaknesses. We still have failures. We still need to resolve conflicts. So please remember that because too many people are still looking for the perfect church. It doesn't exist. And if you ever find one, you've heard this a million times, don't join it. You'll ruin it. (laughs) People aren't perfect. It wasn't perfect back then. And so Paul is dealing very dramatically and even saying, you're forcing me into a position of harshness unless you resolve some of these conflicts before I come. As we get into it, I just want to read this to you. It's it's the Tate family in church. And every church has this family, the Tates. And when I say it, you recognize, oh, I know that guy. I know that gal. Every church has the Tates. There's old man Dick Tate, who wants to run everything, while Uncle Roe Tate tries to change everything. Then there's their sister, Agitate. She stirs up plenty of trouble with the help from her husband, Irritate. (laughs) Whenever new projects are suggested, Hesitate and his wife, Vegetate, they want to wait till next year. Then there's Aunt Emma Tate, who wants our church to be like all the others. Devis Tate provides the voice of doom, while Potent Tate wants to be a big shot. And of course, there's the black sheep of the family, Amputate, who has completely cut himself off from the church. Well, the Tates were in Corinth as well, and they stirred up the pot. And so Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you 
by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, he begins very low-key, very sweet, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And he's continuing his thought of if he needs to, he'll get heavy, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Apparently, some leaders who got into Corinth were stirring up the pot. Some think they were Judaizers telling people to keep the law of Moses. These leaders were making accusations about Paul in his absence, behind his back, to the Corinthians, saying things like, oh, well, Paul is bold when he writes letters, but when he's in person, he's weak and he's timid. Oh, that, that guy can write a mean letter, but he is a wimp in person. You see, some of these leaders who trusted in outward appearances. And I'll explain that in a moment because he, he does mention this quite a number of times that you guys are looking on the outward, not the heart, not, not the power of the Spirit. Some of these leaders were heavy-handed. They manipulated people. They placed people under their thumb, their control. And uh, Jesus spoke about this kind. He spoke about the rulers of the Gentiles love to lord it over them. And those who are great among the Gentiles exercise authority over them. But he said, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be the greatest among you, let him be the servant. And that's how he begins as a servant. He says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. You see, a mature leader doesn't have to throw his weight around. Immature leaders want to throw their weight around. Do you know who's boss here? Do you know that this is my jurisdiction in the ministry? I'm over this area of the ministry. What I say goes. That's an immature leader. A mature leader doesn't need to throw his weight around, but rather wants to carry the weight of others. Wants to encourage, lift up those who are falling. And so Paul begins very sweetly, very low-keyed, not heavy-handed, we were down in Belize about a week and a half, two weeks ago, for an outreach. And um, one of the problems they're having in that country, we were told, in fact, I met a couple of these guys, were self-appointed apostles. They represent the restored church, they say, with apostolic leadership. And God wants to restore it, and aren't you blessed? We're the ones he's restoring it with. We're your new apostles. They've come from the United States to be the apostles over Belize. And it's a, it's a shepherding kind of a movement. It's a, it's a reinvention of an old, bad, false teaching. The shepherding movement. It's basically uh, discipleship taken to an extreme. That is, you need a personal shepherd in your life. You need to be accountable to somebody. Who's your accountability? And it has to be the kind of accountability that if, if you want to make a decision, the shepherd must make it for you. Oh, you want to marry somebody. Well, you better check with your shepherd. Oh, I love this person, shepherd. I want to marry her. Oh, you can't. Well, I feel like it's the Lord's will. Well, I prayed about it and God said no. I'd like to buy a television, shepherd. You can't buy a television. Unless you like to buy mine. I have one for sale. No. <laughs> but it's this... This discipleship taken to an extreme, a personal shepherd. And then at the top of the lot, at the top of the triangle, is like the super shepherd, the apostle, the ruler of all. Well, I love what David said. 
and I stand on it. The Lord is my shepherd. And you know, when the Lord is your shepherd, why would you settle for anything else? Why would you want to settle for anyone less? If the Lord wants to be your shepherd, why would you let a human shepherd be your Lord? And I love this about Paul. He has authority. He is an apostle. He did found the church. And yet he comes in so humble, so meek. I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you, not commanding you, not writing this down in stone, pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, I understand that the title pastor, poimenas in the New Testament, speaks of a shepherd, that I am a shepherd over the souls of men and women. But I also am a sheep with a great shepherd. And the shepherding isn't the same kind of shepherding that I recognize God has over the church. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm responsible to the shepherd. And... I don't want to be responsible for all of your decisions. I have enough problem being responsible for my decisions. There's there's a lot of areas in my life I don't know what to do. I seek counsel for. I seek the counsel of other pastors and other godly men and women. So let the Lord be your shepherd, even as Paul wanted the Lord to be their shepherd and not some of these false, uh, heavy-handed apostles that were in the church. Now, He mentions in verse 1, meekness, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Meekness does not mean weakness. Some people picture meekness as a weak individual. Think of the word meek in your mind. What comes to mind? To a lot of people, some spineless, convictionless, milk-toasty person. Well, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Oh, there's a meek person. No, that could be a weird person. You know what the word meek really means? It doesn't mean weak. It means powerful, but under control. Praos is the Greek word, or praotes, which means power under control. It was a word that was often used in the Greek language to describe a a stallion that had been controlled, tamed, broken. And now the stallion, strong, muscular, powerful, who could pounce on the rider if it chose to, could buck it off and stomp on it. This powerful animal was under control. And by the turn of the rein would supply move according to the hand of the master. And a horse that was broken in that regard was called praas, meek. It was also a word that described an ointment that was put on a wound to take away the sting to bring soothing to it. A meek individual takes away the hurt. It's not heavy-handed. It's powerful, but power under control. Plato even used the word in one of his stories about a young child who came requesting a praos physician, a doctor who was meek, who was gentle, who had it all in control, but it wasn't power out of control. That's what it means. Christ was powerful, but he had his power under control, same with Paul, by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I, I, I plead with you, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. He's, he's playing on the accusation that they had of Paul. A meek preacher will be God's gentleman. A meek servant of God will be God's gentleman or gentlewoman. A little girl was asked to write an essay in school about Quakers. And she said, using the term meek, a Quaker is a very meek person who never fights and never answers back. And then she continued, my mother is a Quaker. My father is not. (laughs) Never fights, never answers back. Yeah, that describes mom. Doesn't describe dad. But it described Paul, powerful, under control. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. You're forcing me, he's saying, into this position 
to be heavy-handed with some who are making these accusations because they are undermining your confidence in the work that God has already done at Corinth. Now you'll notice that he says, they think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Okay, we're in the flesh. We are humans. We have we have bodies, we have frailties, we are subject to temptations, we are subject to failures. We are in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. When we fight, man, we don't fight with human stuff, we fight with divine stuff. For he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Remember when Paul listed the armor in Ephesians, and he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age. It's a spiritual battle, and you can't use carnal weapons in a spiritual battle. Now, I think he's alluding to these false apostles who came to this Greek city, had a Greek background, and prized things like human eloquence, their ability to manipulate the people, crowd dynamics, pop psychology in that ancient setting. And Paul's saying when it comes to fighting, when it comes to spiritual ministry, we don't employ these kinds of tactics. We don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, let's read 4 and 5 together, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. These arguments, these things that he's casting down, are the philosophical arguments that are being fed to them by these false teachers. Walls of resistance. We don't use human ploys to get those walls of resistance down in people's lives. And we should remember that whenever we deal with unbelievers who have walls of resistance, these mental walls, these roadblocks to the gospel, we can't bring them to Christ. Somebody once said, you saved me. They told me this, you saved me. You're the one that converted me. I've had, I've had struggles in my life but you're the one that saved me. And I think, well, that's your problem. <laughs> I saved you. I can't save anyone. If Christ saves you, it'll be a whole different thing. I can't convict a person. I can't lead them to Christ. That's something the Spirit of God has to do. That's where the spiritual weapons come in. Now, when, by the Spirit, giving you His wisdom to reach into people's lives, when they have these walls, these mental walls, when those mental walls come crashing down, the doors of the heart start opening up. And you've probably experienced that, some of you, where you've shared with people and just in simplicity, Lord, here goes, I'm going to trust you on this one, give me the right words. After a period of time, they go, I'm getting it, I'm seeing it, yes, I want that. And you're going, hot diggity dog. And you even might be tempted to say, boy, I'm good. <laughs> and the truth is you're not. You have a good God who works through imperfect instruments to pull down those strongholds, those arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Think of the walls of Jericho. How did they come down? Was it human ingenuity? Was it a plan, a grand plan to bring catapults in and machinery in and just the right kind of engineering tactics? Not at all. They walked around the walls, tooted their horns, and trusted God, and those walls came down. No human explanation possible. That was God who did that. He pulled them down. And it says, bringing every thought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. He's not speaking about his own thoughts. I'm bringing all of my thoughts to captivity. He's speaking about the, the thoughts on the other end, the thoughts of these uh, philosophies that are errant and wrong that are being fed the Corinthian church. Verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? That's a great question that we ought to answer. If anyone is 
convinced in himself that he is Christ's. Let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. Even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us, for edification, not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will be also indeed when we are present. Have you ever heard somebody on the radio, some speaker, some Bible teacher, some preacher, having never seen their face, and by hearing them, you get a mental picture of what they look like. You go, I picture him as this and that. Then you see them, <laughs> and, and you're shocked one way or the other. It's always fun to go to places where you're on the radio. I was in Belize, I mentioned. We've been on the radio there for a number of years. And I often get, you're not at all what I pictured. So I always ask, what'd you picture me like? Because it's, and they get embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I thought you were about 60s, dark hair, balding, quite plump. I remember uh, reading J.I. Packer in my early Christian walk, Knowing God, a book that just revolutionized my life. I still love it to this day. Fabulous, powerful, powerful words, powerful writing touched my heart, and then I met him. And he was so different. He was very quiet, unassuming. Uh, his speech wasn't dynamic. It was very flat and very organized and very, very slow and, and very pedantic, very British. And I just thought, man, it's not what I pictured him. Well, you also, no doubt, have a mental picture of Paul the Apostle. And I bet the mental picture you have, unless you have read the second century apocryphal description of Paul, you probably think of Paul, well, probably a tall guy, maybe strong, uh, chiseled features of face, maybe even a halo that accompanied him wherever he went, <laughs> if you've seen the pictures. You have a mental image of Paul. And yet, the only description we have of Paul, as I mentioned, is a second century apocryphal description of Paul that says Paul was short, hence the term Paul, which means little. He was short in stature. He had a bald head with little wisps of thin hair. His eyebrows formed one solid eyebrow. They, they joined in the middle, says the description. He had bull, chicken legs that were bowed outward, bowed chicken legs, a large hooked nose, and squinty eyes. That's Paul, man. Now that's a different mental picture, right? In fact, some of you are going, you just ruined it for me. <laughs> You're thinking now of Marty Feldman instead of Paul the Apostle. That's Paul. Weak in bodily appearance. In fact, the description says he also had a high voice, kind of a, a, kind of a whiny, high-pitched voice. Okay, with that in mind, look at what he says about himself. For his letters, verse 10, they say are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. Now go back to that question that it begins with. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? Oh, we do, don't we? The outward appearance matters a lot to us. We all have mirrors. We have more than one. And um, they can be quite distressing sometimes. They tell the truth. 
We look in them and we try to do the best. All of us, we're conscious about how we look, our outward appearance and the clothes we wear. And all of us have some image we want to project. Whether it's an avant-garde kind of dress or it's a preppy style or it's whatever we want to project. And we also grade people on their outward appearance. We all do. God was right when he said man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. We do. We grade a person based upon their physical looks, based upon their background, based upon their ethnicity sometimes, unfortunately, based upon their education, etc. Well, Samuel did that. He was looking for the next king, the first king of Israel, and he went to the house of Jesse and he saw somebody that looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. His name was Eliab. He was the eldest son, and he thought, this is the Lord's anointed. Look at him. He looks so royal. And God had to tap him on the shoulder and say, Samuel, I've rejected him. This isn't the guy. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And he went through the whole list. And the least likely was that little redheaded shepherd kid out there named David. And here's this little guy named Paul with a hook nose and the single brow and a squeaky voice and squinty eyes, and he's the great apostle. <laughs> and they made fun of him. Now look in verse 10. It says, this is what they are saying, his speech is contemptible. His speech is, I don't think it means that he was a bad preacher. He was quite a communicator. He was a skilled communicator. He was an educated man. The more I read and study about Paul the Apostle, the more impressed I am with his character, with his background, with his ability to communicate. But keep in mind, we're speaking here from a Greek Corinthian perspective that placed a high uh, level of marksmanship uh, on eloquence golden-tongued oration like, like Apollos had. But Paul was quite a preacher because when he spoke to Lystra, if you remember in the book of Acts, they listened to what he had to say and they were ready to worship him as the chief god called Hermes. So he had a powerful presentation. His first mission was in Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and it says he confounded in his speech the Jews who were at Damascus proving this is the very Christ. But when he got around the Greeks, he didn't quite speak with the, the golden tongue, the oration, the eloquence that they were used to. They loved the flowery speech, and Paul was to the point. And so when he went to Athens and he was on the Areopagus and he preached the resurrection of Christ from the dead, they said, what does this babbler have to say? Those were the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers. What does this babbler have to say? The Greek term spermalagos, or seed picker. What is this seed picker saying? He's, he's picking up tidbits of information, tidbits of philosophy from different uh, disciplines and putting them all into one. That's what they accused him of. He doesn't have the, the persuasive oration abilities that we're used to. That's what it means. His speech is contemptible. Well, let's search such a person consider this. Okay, if these false prophets are saying this, these, uh, this group of of dissenters at Corinth, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we, what we will be also indeed when we are present. So, okay, listen, if you want me to be heavy-handed, I'll be heavy-handed. I'll be confrontational. It's not his heart. He did say a couple of times, clear up some of these issues before I come so that when I come, I can just graciously minister to you. But if not, you know, I'm on the warpath. I'm coming in meekness and in gentleness, but I got the boxing gloves ready. I'm ready to confront those who are ripping you off. He's a good shepherd. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. Speaking of those false teachers. They puffed themselves up. They were authoritarian. They were heavy-handed. They loved their degrees. They loved their credentials. And Paul says, I'm not going to do what they do. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. 
Ooh, that's good. Be careful who you compare yourself with. You can always find somebody worse. <laughs> you may have to go to Skid Row, but you can always find somebody worse than yourself. And so we often compare ourselves with other men instead of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's our measuring stick. Not a shepherd on earth, not a pastor on earth, not a Christian on earth, not somebody else, other group. It's Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians. Till you come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so to compare yourself with other people. Well, I'm better than he is. I read more chapters of the Bible than she does. I pray way more. I go to church more. Is not wise. You know there's often a difference between how we see ourselves and how the Lord sees us. You want them to be the same. You really do. You want the grade that Jesus gives us to be the way you really see. You want to see yourself in honesty. Turn to Revelation 2 for just a moment. I'm going to give you three quick examples that are all found in the same place. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Jesus writes to seven churches. And he grades them. He gives his opinion of them. His word concerning them and their future. And in verse 8, he writes to the church at Smyrna. And look at verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. You are poor. You know you're poor. But I say you are rich. If you measure physically, you're poor. But spiritually, you are so rich gives them higher marks than they saw themselves. Look over at chapter 3. It's the church of Sardis in verse 2. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Oh, that's the, that's the church that's alive, man. Jesus says, well, that's what they say about you. That's your reputation. That's the name on the front but you're dead. Now look over at uh, verse 14, the Laodicean church. We're introduced to them in verse 14, but look at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. One church says, we're poor. Jesus says, you're rich. Another church says, we're rich. We don't need anything. Jesus says, you need everything. I was like that. I grew up in a religious home. I thought I had it made. I kept the sacraments. I did the rituals. I was faithful in this and in that. I, I, I. Me, me, me. I've done it all. Until the day in 1973 when I realized I was poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. And there was Jesus Christ, not an organization, not an institution, ready to clothe me, ready to forgive me, ready to come into a relationship. So don't compare yourself among yourselves. For that matter, when it comes to serving the Lord, don't compare yourself with others. It's very discouraging. God's not going to ask you, were you as faithful as Charles Spurgeon? Did you do what Billy Graham did? He's not going to ask you that. He's just going to ask you, were you faithful to what I called you to do? And if God has called you to be a housewife or to push a broom or to just witness to a person, if you're faithful to that, you'll get a reward. I've discovered a whole lot of people that wish they were somebody else. They don't like being themselves. If they could have a wish, they would have two of another person. Somebody they like, somebody they admire. They want to be that person. They don't want to be them. They want to be lost. They don't want to exist. The ancient rabbis had a little saying. They said, every person who stands before God on the day of reckoning will be not asked by God, why weren't you like Abraham or why weren't you like Moses, but why weren't you you? how I made you. You are unique. You have unique personalities, unique gifts to offer, and God wants you to be you. 
and to contribute you to us. Instead of saying, well, I'm not like another person, doesn't matter. That's what makes you special. You have unique gifts, and we all need them. So it's so freeing. Don't compare yourself among yourself. It's not wise. However, we will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not extending ourselves beyond our sphere, thus not reaching you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Here's the principle. We should ask ourselves, am I where God wants me? Am I where God wants me? God has chosen for you an assigned task, a place that includes a a part of the world, a part of the country, where you work, who you're married to. He's given you a sphere, a task assigned. Find that. Do that. Thrive in that. Whatever sphere. Now to Paul, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. When he was saved in Acts chapter 9, the prophecy came to him, you tell Paul that he's going to be my representative before kings, Gentiles, and the children of Israel as well. He became the apostle to the Gentile world. And that included Corinth. He was the one that came to Corinth and started the church. Now, others came in after he's... There was no church in Corinth before Paul came. Once the church was established, then these false apostles came in. You know... It's no different than cultists today. They look for an established church in a community. When it's thriving and established, then they come in and they seek to draw people away into themselves. Like these false teachers, false leaders, they become like spiritual mistletoe. You know, mistletoe is, oh yeah, that's what you kiss under. No, a mistletoe is a parasite. A mistletoe has no life of its own. It exists because of the life of another organism and feeds off of the life of another organism. And such were these false leaders who came to Corinth. Now the church is established. We're going to come in and undermine Paul's authority. Paul says, this is the authority. This is the sphere God has given to us. It includes you. To preach the gospel, verse 16, in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment course, in his mind, what was he thinking about? Beyond them was Rome. Beyond Rome was Spain, two places he mentioned often. That's where I want to go. I want to go as far as I can go with the gospel. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Now, when he says that in verse 17, he's quoting, he's what we call free rendering a verse. That is, he takes a verse of Scripture and sort of uh, restates it for the purpose of the text, and it has the, the assigned purpose. The free rendering is of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, 24, right around there, that says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glory, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. In other words, I want to get the credit. God wants to get the credit in ministry. The glory in ministry belongs to the Lord. Oh, what a marvelous work you've done for the Lord. Well, thank you, but really, what a wonderful work the wonderful God has done through me. All the glory belongs and the credit belongs to God. That was one of the problems with the Corinthian church. They loved to ascribe the glory to leaders, right? 1 Corinthians 1, some said I'm of Paul, others said I'm of Apollos, others said I'm of Cephas, others said I'm of Christ. Paul said, that's carnal. Christ isn't divided. But it is human tendency to put people up on a pedestal and follow the messenger rather than the message. It still happens today. I'm of Calvin, some will say. Oh no, I'm of Arminius, others will say. Others will plant their flag. I'm of John MacArthur. No, no, I'm of Chuck Smith. No, I'm of this. That's carnality. That's divisiveness. Let him that glories glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. 
God, and we're done with the study. These are concluding remarks. But I really want this to sink in. God has confined himself to using human beings to do his work upon the earth. You and I are the material God has to work with. You're going, that's pretty bleak. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. God has confined himself to using rough material, base material, so that he would get the glory. So that when the work is done, let he the glories glory in the Lord. Not in one's heavy-handed manipulation, one's anointing and powerful persuasiveness, not one's background in PhDs, in the Lord. God wants the reaction to be the same reaction when Jesus was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. The disciples were fishing. They fished. They caught nothing. And Jesus said, boys, throw your nets on the other side. They did so. And there was a huge response, huge catch of fish. And somebody in the boat said, it was John. He said, it is the Lord. Only the Lord can do that. We've tried all night. That's the Lord. It's not because we're great fishermen. That was pretty cool. You see the way I tossed that net on the other side? There's a technique you see. You get into it. That's the Lord. And so that's why God has confined himself to using me and you. So he'll get the glory. First Corinthians, there it is again. You see your calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Whew, my hand goes up. That's me to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the mighty and the things that are base and are not to confound those things that are. So in the end, people will give the glory to God. You see, when a skilled workman uses the most primitive instruments, his ability shines even greater. Just like a surgeon out on the mission field with a Swiss army knife, if he can do a uh, a, a very detailed operation. Let's say he could do brain surgery with just a Swiss Army knife. If he could pull that off, nobody would take the knife and go, that is a cool knife, man. Wow. Did you see what that knife did? No. We would say, that doctor is pretty amazing, isn't he? He did what no doctor has been able to do. So because of the primitiveness of the instrument, the ability of the one wielding, using, wielding the instrument is all the greater. So God uses us so that when people get blessed, people come to Christ, we go, oh, it's the Lord. He gets the glory.